0: You're listening to Walter Edgar's Journal, and my guest is Professor Andy Myers of USC Upstate, and we're talking about the role of the military in South Carolina during World War I. Our conversation is a part of the Conversations on South Carolina in World War I, sponsored by the University of South Carolina's College of Arts and Sciences. Welcome, and I also want to welcome our speaker tonight, Andy Myers. Andy, like a number of our speakers during the Conversations, has a long-time association with the university, but particularly with the Institute for Southern Studies. Andy did his graduate work at the University of Virginia, and while he was writing his dissertation about Fort Jackson, he spent three years as a research fellow of the Institute, and then he also was a faculty member. For one semester he was a, a visiting instructor. He was commissioned as a regular army officer. He spent two years on the DMZ in Korea, and then he was an officer with the Old Guard in Washington, which is responsible, of course, for the staffing the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier. He was in the Army Reserve. Uh, He was mobilized in 2006 and spent 14 months in Iraq. Uh, He is now retired from the Army. He is Professor of American Studies at the University of South Carolina Upstate. He has a number of Books, Recovering the Piedmont Past, Bridging the Centuries in the South Carolina Upcountry, 1877 to 1941, and Black, White, and Olive Drab, Racial Integration at Fort Jackson, South Carolina. So, Andy, welcome to the conversation.
1: Thank you for inviting me.
0: The military and South Carolina, World War I. Let's... Back up a little bit. I think we have to get into politics, but all of a sudden, when our country gets ready to go to war, we've got military bases sprouting up everywhere in South Carolina.
1: Yes. Well, South Carolina was was an ideal place for those military bases. Uh, first off, you had the climate, mm-hmm. uh, which and a number of the units that that came to South Carolina and also to North Carolina and Georgia were from places like Connecticut and Pennsylvania and places where the weather was really too cold to train during the wintertime. And so uh, here in South Carolina, you could have year-round training. Uh, This area around Columbia, the Sandhills region, was particularly conducive to training because uh, the sand allows for the drainage of water. And mud is, (laughs) uh, if if you've been in the service and you spend any time in the infantry, uh, slogging through mud, is is not is not a whole lot of fun and it's not really conducive to training. You can you can get used to being miserable pretty quickly, and so so being able to clean your vehicles, clean your troops was was useful. And so there, if you look at the southeast, not just South Carolina, uh, there's a whole string of installations that follow the the Sandhills uh, area. Uh, there's Fort Lee or Camp Lee in Virginia. There's Fort Bragg, Camp Bragg, as it was in 1917. Uh, Fort Gordon in Augusta, which at the time was actually called Camp Hancock. There was a, a, there was a Camp Gordon, but it was near Atlanta. Mm. Uh, and has since been closed. And then, of course, here in South Carolina, you have Camp Jackson, now Fort Jackson. Uh, and so the, the terrain was very conducive. It was rural. Uh, a lot of these, these forts that we now have were artillery impact areas. They didn't actually do a whole lot of training on the, on, on the camps themselves, except for the cantonment area. Uh, but they wanted to go out into the surrounding area and do maneuvers. And so this area was very rural, and so that, that also made it attractive. Of course, it's on the East Coast and in World War I, you know, the war is going on in Europe. Uh, and then finally, the New South boosters of this era wanted to recruit businesses. They wanted to recruit industry, and having a, a military installation was uh, was a source of jobs it was a source of source of revenue
0: well actually South Carolinians they learned that during the Spanish-American War when we had two bases here and what that did for the economy now there is a story about how we actually got Fort Jackson of course Columbia had and South Carolina had very good connections with the Wilson administration you need to understand that we talked about last week Wilson spent his teenage years here before he went off to Davidson College and he couldn't make it so then he went off to Princeton to (laughs) finish his education. But the the newspapers in South Carolina, the the state newspaper was very much behind Wilson. And in fact, at the the, uh, convention where he was nominated, South Carolina was only one of two Southern delegations that started out sponsoring the governor from New Jersey as a presidential possibility and he was very close to the man who was elected governor of South Carolina in 1916, and that's Richard I. Manning. Not that there was necessarily any influence that resulted in us, little South Carolina having three military bases, not just Camp Jackson, Camp Severe and Camp Wadsworth. Now those other two were in the red hills of the upstate, so I guess they were preparing them for the mud of the Marne and everything else that the guys would get when they got up, but we got three bases, We have Paris Island, which picks up, and we have the naval base in Charleston. So little South Carolina's got five military bases, which are important economically, but they also bring in all sorts of folks from off.
1: I'm uh, just amazed at how many people came to South Carolina as a consequence of those bases. You think of the the three bases, Uh, each one of them had an infantry division station. You had the 81st Division here at Camp Jackson, uh, the 30th Division, which included the South Carolina National Guard at Camp Severe, and the um, 27th Infantry Division from New York State at Camp Wadsworth. Okay,
0: right, the, the 30th, that was Old Hickory. That was the Old Hickory. And the other one was the Wildcat. Uh, the 81st was the Wildcat. Wild, Wildcat Division. And, and you also had elements of the 91st, right? No, I'm sorry, the
1: 93rd, that was. The Negro Division that we had elements. Well, the, the, you had a regiment from the actually yeah. two regiments technically. Yeah. Uh, you yeah. had the the 371st was a was an African American regiment of draftees, a great many of whom came from South Carolina. They did their training at at Camp Jackson. Uh, there was also a regiment which started off as the 15th New York Infantry, which be, was redesignated as the 369th. Uh, infantry regiment, and both of those were technically part of the ninety third right, well,
0: okay when, when you're talking about bringing an infantry division here in nineteen eighteen nineteen nineteen how many men are you talking about
1: we're talking about many many more than a than a modern division uh, we're talking about thirty thousand people uh, you know a modern division has between ten to twenty thousand people in it, but uh, in World War one I guess General Pershing wanted to have a, a, a force that, could, that was combined arms and that would be able to exploit any kind of advantage that they gained in, okay. in trans
0: You're now mili- military folks. <laughs> Tell them what you mean by combined arms. You okay, just-
1: it, was a, it was called a square division. A square division. A square, it consisted of, of two brigades of infantry, uh, each one having two regiments of, of infantry. Those regiments had about... 3,700 to 4,000 people uh, in each regiment. In addition to that, you had an entire battalion of machine gunners. Of course, you know trench warfare, World War I. The machine gun is a very important weapon. They have an entire battalion of machine gunners. They have artillery. Uh, they have an entire brigade of artillery, plus uh, engineers and other logistical support, transport. Uh, not only uh, not only trucks. But mules, uh, still, this is still a, an animal-powered military. So you're talking just, a, a, I mean, you know, you know, 30,000 30, with you know, just, just the force alone, then everything, the training, uh, the laborers who build the camps. I mean, it's just, a, if you add them all together, there's more, more soldiers in South Carolina than were in Sherman's army. In, in 1865, that's another way of thinking about it.
0: Well, also, at, at 30,000, you're talking about each camp is among the largest cities in South Carolina. <laughs> uh, it wouldn't have been bigger than, well, it's about the size of Columbia. No, it's still larger than Colombians in, in 1916.
1: Not to mention, what it dropping in on Spartanburg? Yeah, Spartanburg or, had about, I think, about 15,000 people. Greenville had about 17,000. and So, uh, so you're talking
0: about... More than doubling the I mean, this incredible influx of, of, of folks. Uh, and it's interesting that the 30th, which the old Hickory division trained in Greenville, they were the National Guard units from the two Carolinas before they went overseas, and then the Wildcat Division. Now all of the divisions that trained in South Carolina, including the two elements of the 9'3rd, actually were, saw extensive combat once they got to Europe which again was not true of a lot of soldiers that were drafted or volunteered.
1: Yeah, the uh, the African American units were were sent very early. Uh, and if, I don't we could discuss this now or later but there's a very interesting story about the the Harlem Hellfighters that involved South Carolina. There was a lot of resistance in South Carolina to African-Americans training at, at any of these camps. And when word came, I guess they tried to extract promises from the War Department that no Negro troops would be assigned. Uh, and the War Department did it anyhow, because it was, it was a very rapid mobilization. Uh, some of the northern units had African-American troops that were organic to them. The 15th New York was part of the New York National Guard. And so when the New York National Guard arrived in Spartanburg, they brought their African-American regiment with them. Uh, This led to a a fairly serious incident. Uh, You have to understand just a little background. uh, They arrived in September, October 1917, just a couple of months before there had been a a very nasty incident in Houston, Texas, involving African Americans of the, I think, the 24th Infantry Regiment. There had been a shootout between the soldiers and the police. About 20 people were killed. Uh, there were court-martials of over 100 soldiers and I think about more than a dozen were executed. So this was this was a very serious uh, situation in Houston. It's been called the Houston riot. And so a couple of months later, here comes the 15th New York uh, Infantry Regiment to, to Spartanburg, South Carolina. Uh, and there were a number of incidents that took place when the soldiers came to, came to town. Uh, most notably, there was one involving the band. Uh, the 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 band of the of the New York National Guard was uh, was led by an early jazz pioneer named James Reese Europe. Uh, some, if you've ever seen uh, Ken Burns' series on jazz, he has a very uh, good section uh, on on that subject. He was he had already played at Carnegie Hall with his Clef Club Orchestra in 1912, and he was recruited into the band. He uh, brought a number of professional grade musicians with him into the band and so they, they played, once they got to Europe, they played all over, all over Europe but uh, in Spartanburg they, they went to different places in town to play and on one occasion they stopped at a hotel, to they were waiting, they were waiting for their ride back to camp which was several miles away and uh, the, the drum major, uh, Noble Sissel, who was also a, a jazz uh, jazz great in the 1920s, uh, went into a, a hotel to get a newspaper from out of town. And he apparently did not remove his hat to the satisfaction of the, of the proprietor. And so uh, his hat was knocked off, he was pushed to the ground and kicked, and a fight almost ensued right there in, in Spartanburg, in downtown Spartanburg. Uh, James Reese Europe actually brought everybody back to order. He ordered the troops to attention, and they obeyed him, and he got them back to camp. But there were still rumors circulating. On one occasion, the the soldiers thought about doing the same thing that had happened in Houston. They grabbed their rifles. They were going to march on town and shoot it up. And uh, fortunately, their regimental commander was able to persuade them not to do that but he went to the War Department. Uh, Emmett Scott, who was a special assistant to the Secretary of War, he had also been a, a secretary to Booker T. Washington, uh, who had passed away in 1915. And uh, he did an investigation and they decided, they decided to send him to Europe. Because if they had sent him to another camp, that would have been rewarding Spartanburg for, you know, for, you know, for, for being uh, unjust to them. And so they decided to send him early to Europe. And so they ended up being assigned to the French army. They were given French, I think they kept their khakis, but they wore, if you see pictures of like Freddie Stowers and uh, some of the soldiers they're wearing, they're wearing the French minor type helmets. They have French weapons. And they got right into the thick of things. They were the first Americans to engage in combat in Europe as, as a unit. And they distinguished themselves. Uh, the, uh, many of them were awarded the French Croix de Guerre. Mm-hmm. Uh, there were two in particular, uh, Henry uh, Henry Johnson and Needham Roberts, who fought off the Germans. Uh, I think they ran out of ammunition and ended up fighting with knives. Uh, it made a, there was a lot of publicity about it. Uh, Johnson was eventually uh, awarded the Medal of Honor in 2015.
0: Okay. Well, you, you mentioned Freddie Stowers, and of course, at one point he was the only. Uh, African American to have w- been awarded the Medal of Honor in either World War, and that was posthumous, but that was back in the 90s. Yes,
1: yes, he was. He was with the 371st. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was primarily. It was really the, the only draftee regiment of the of the 93rd Infantry Division. The other ones came from National Guards in Illinois, Washington D.C., uh, New York, and so uh, they also, I guess, following the pattern of the other 93rd units, were attached to the French and uh, he was, was killed in the action that uh, ultimately resulted in him being awarded the Medal of Honor. Uh, he was originally awarded the Distinguished Service Cross, and in the late 1980s, people began asking, why were no African Americans awarded the Medal of Honor in either, in either Great War? And so uh, they found, at that time, there were time limits on the award. And, They've managed to find an apple. I guess his regimental commander had recommended him for the Medal of Honor, but it had never been processed, uh, like a lot of Army paperwork. And uh, <laughs> and he, uh, uh, they were able to process the paperwork and, uh, and award him posthumously the Medal of Honor. His sister was still alive. I think two of his sisters, in fact.
0: They went to uh, Washington.
1: Yeah. Uh, when uh, when it was awarded, I believe in 1991.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay. Or right. we digressed, as the yeah. late Owen Conley said, uh, used to say in his classes. But uh, we were really talking about the training that took place. Where the army is all is all male. The
1: army is all, with, yeah. with the exception of, a, of just a very with a few. Of a the
0: few. nurse corps. Okay. And
1: uh, they, of course, a, a modern trainee who went back then, uh, imagine going back in the past would, would absolutely freak out because everybody's wearing a drill sergeant hat. Uh, <laughs> That was the, the, the Smoky Bear hat was, was part of the standard uniform. Uh, but the big difference is that they, they trained in units rather than as individuals. Uh, nowadays, basic training is done as, a, as individual replacements. And so they go through eight or however many weeks long it happens to be, and, and then they're assigned to, to the units. Back then, they assembled the regiments, they would go through a program of, of basic individual instruction, and then they would work their way up to doing uh, higher-level higher maneuvers. Uh, that, that, that was also the pattern in the Second World War. The, the individual training really didn't take off until, until after 1945.
0: Yeah. Well, and, and of course, the, the guard units that come are going to be community-based, and this is where, uh, for example, South Carolina has Seven Medal of Honor winners in World War One. When I did that, I didn't know about Mr. Johnson. There were 77 at that time, so 10% of the Medals of Honor that were awarded, and they were awarded. You never say earned. Individuals were awarded the Medal of Honor. That's 10% coming out of Little South Carolina, uh, including our longtime Adjutant General.
1: And most of them came out of the same regiment. Yes, the 118th. Upstate up uh, South regiment. Carolina,
0: upstate Rock Hill. General Dozier, of course, ended up being our adjutant general in South Carolina for decades. Um, quite a character,
1: yeah, and, and made quite a difference in South Carolina. You talk the impact of World War I. you know, the celebrity is not quite the correct word, but the the stature that he gained from being a Medal of Honor recipient and then becoming adjutant general of the South Carolina uh, South Carolina National Guard. He made a, a tremendous difference in this state over the course of his career, which lasted into the 1950s. Especially after the the military disbanded or demobilized after World War One, uh, he lived out at Camp Jackson, and he worked mightily to develop that as a National Guard training base. So other National Guard units from other states could come in and train, and of course bring money uh, into the into the local economy. Uh, he also, especially during the Franklin Roosevelt administration, uh, coordinated with the WPA to uh, to to get buildings and other facilities built at the camp uh, national guard armories across the state I mean you think about the the, the influence that he had long term in terms of infrastructure and jobs uh, it really just resonates across the decade
0: yeah and they're just now tearing down some of those buildings at Fort Jackson that I think the, I think the old post headquarters is finally been in the dust and there's a chapel but those Temporary buildings that were erected in the late 1930s, early 1940s, uh, lasted more than just a couple of years. Indeed. Um, now, you, you were mentioning draftees, uh, and draftees were trained in South Carolina as well as the...
1: Yes, I, and I guess we should make a distinction about these different counts camp- because the, the divisions were, uh, came from different sources. The, the, the military as a whole was called the National Army. It was called the Army of the United States during World War II, but it was a, a temporary formation for purposes of the war, and it consisted of regular army. Those are full-time, authorized by Congress uh, officers and, and, and men. Uh, it includes National Guard units that have been federalized, and then it also includes conscripts. And so at Camp, uh, Camp Severe and Camp Wadsworth, you had National Guard divisions that have been mobilized and were training. And also I should add, because they weren't technically, they weren't in South Carolina, but surely they influenced it. And you also had in Augusta, uh, Georgia, at Camp Hancock, the 84th Division, from Pencil- that was the Pennsylvania National Guard. And then in Charlotte, North Carolina, you had Camp Green, which was the 26th Infantry Division, which was mainly from Connecticut and New England. Mm. And so, uh, so these, were, these, were national, these were mobilized National Guardsmen. And, of course, there were some conscripts that filled in their ranks and brought them up to you know, these 4,000-man regiments. Uh, the South Carolina regiments only had about 1, 900 to 1,200 people in them, mm-hmm. so they had to be fleshed out with other people as well. Uh, but at places like Camp Jackson, it was, it was, all, it was all conscripts. Uh, And most of the higher number divisions, you have the the 80th uh, in Virginia, Camp Lee, uh, the 81st here at Camp Jackson, and then in in Georgia at uh, Camp Gordon, you had the 82nd division, which was, uh, uh, I always have to make fun of paratroopers on this, their their most famous, the most famous person from the 82nd uh, was not jump qualified, that was uh, Sergeant Alvin York. (laughs) (laughs) But, but I digress. So. You di- that's
0: okay. We talked last week a little bit about the, the conditions in South Carolina with education or the lack thereof, health issues. Um, more than 300,000 South Carolina men registered for the draft. 54 actually went into uniform. 54,000, not 54, 54,000. <laughs> but, again, South Carolina had the highest rejection rate of... any any state in in the Union. Now, you've mentioned the units being segregated, and if you go to the Calhoun County Museum, down in St. Matthews, they have a calendar which was issued by the Farmers Bank of Fort Mott, and it says, Our Boys in Uniform and the top of the calendar is a service flag with 72 stars, which means there were 72 men in uniform. Now, it says, our boys in uniform, in in service. There are white, and then it says colored. There are, from Calhoun County, there were 21 white soldiers and 51 colored soldiers. They were, the fact, to me, the fact that all of them were. The service flag has 72 stars in it, despite being South Carolina in 1918. I find to be a little bit remarkable, but at least this is a community that did recognize that. Yes, there were Black South Carolinians in the army. Yes,
1: and the same division was reflected on the uh, war memorials afterwards. In many cases, you, you see the. Uh, the Doughboy statue or the plaque honoring uh, soldiers who fought in the Great War and in many cases they're broken down by white soldiers and, and colored soldiers.
0: Which is currently under debate in a community that wants to change that but we have laws in South Carolina about monuments. So not just Confederate monuments but any war memorial is governed by state law regardless of who erected it. So. Um, let's Let's talk about the units in in Europe.
1: And I'll, I guess I should also step back when I talk about African American combat units, because we, we oftentimes uh, give greater attention to those who fight on the front lines than all the other soldiers and service people who provide support and provide logistics. And that's always been one of the strengths of the United States military is its logistical element, and being able to support those troops on the front line. Uh, and that's especially true with African American soldiers. Uh, there's, a, I don't have the numbers, but a relatively small percentage of African Americans actually served in those infantry units. Mm-hmm. Uh, most of them served in, in labor battalions. Uh, they dug those trenches, uh, or they, uh, they, they built roads. Uh, they were pioneer battalions. And so here at Camp Jackson, there was the 156th Depot Brigade, which uh, was much larger than uh, than than the infantry regiments. Mm. And so, so was, but that being said, uh, the African Americans who did uh, fight on the front lines, uh, especially the ones who worked with the French, uh, distinguished themselves. They were there were four regiments. They were assigned to the French. Uh, they were fighting, you know, in late. 1917, early 1918, they were fighting with the uh, uh, when the you know the Germans launched an offensive in the in the winter or the early spring of 1918, and so they were in the thick of that uh, during while the rest of the American Expeditionary Force was was still was still training was still heading over, Mm -hmm. Uh, and so that's what and and then they continued uh, you know you know fighting all the way up until until the armistice. Uh, the National Guard units also went over a bit earlier mm-hmm. because they had, they already had some prior experience. I would say the South Carolina National Guard had perhaps more experience than a lot of groups. Uh, they had been mobilized previously, in uh, well, well, of course, for the Spanish-American War they were mobilized, uh, but uh, more to the point, in 1915 uh, they had been mobilized for duty on the Mexican border. With uh, you've heard of Pershing's expedition. Well, the regular forces went into Mexico. National Guardsmen guarded the border of Arizona and, and New Mexico. So they had some they had some experience already. They had worked out, you know, it's out some of the and,
0: bugs. And and there were South Carolina casualties there. The heir yep. to the Gonzales newspaper empire, not empire, but to their to to the state newspaper, was killed on the border. In yes. Just before yeah. World War One.
1: I believe he died of pneumonia, if uh, yeah. memory serves me correctly. But, uh, but uh, they, they went over earlier. Uh, the 30th Division and also the 27th Division from, that had been at Camp Wadsworth, mm-hmm. they went over relatively early as well. And they were actually assigned a British, uh, to a British corps. And so they were surrounded by British on either side when they, uh, when they fought. Uh, they were most notable for breaking the Hindenburg Line. Uh, After the Germans had exhausted themselves in the spring of 1918, they withdrew to a very well-prepared defense that was called the Hindenburg Line. And uh, the the 30th Division and the 27th Division were right in the thick of that. There were seven medals of honor awarded to um, to the 27th Division. Actually, the 30th Division had a total of 12 medals of honor. There were six six of them were South Carolinians, but yep. there were six other ones from Tennessee and, and North Carolina. Uh, and if you read the read the citations, most of them involved charging machine gun nests and, and fighting hand to hand with 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 Germans. Just some really, really fierce fierce well, well, combat. Okay,
0: Let, let's go back to the seventy six medals of honor. That means the thirtieth division, that's twelve out of seventy six awarded in that uh, advance after the the German, not collapse, but their withdrawal from their foray.
1: And, and you units know, like the 81st went over a bit later, and they were part of a large American force mm-hmm. uh, under the control of, of General Pershing. And they, they distinguished themselves, but they, they arrived rather late. Uh, they, they fought in the Meuse-Argonne Offensive late in the summer of 1918, and uh, all the way up until the armistice was declared in November.
0: So Lafayette, we were here, that was, you know... <laughs> There were people there before the the main AEF got got there. And I I was thinking about what you said about the folks with the 30s, because that's where General Dozier would, and his citation reads, again, he he wounded, he charged an enemy machine gun nest. And I do not remember the number of German soldiers that he killed, but it's mind boggling even to read it today. Yeah, and he, he wasn't Sergeant York, but he, he and those and these were upcountry boys for the most part. They were all up, upcountry
1: boys. Yeah, and and, and they suffered. He, he was uh, he was one of the luckier ones. Yes, I was, I was looking at some uh, two of two of the Medal of Honor recipients uh, were posthumous. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that was uh, uh, mm-hmm. Thomas Hall and James Harriet, mm-hmm. uh, but the other ones suffered after the war. Uh, Richmond Hilton. Uh, was was one of the Medal of Honor recipients. He in the 1920s he was uh, the commandant of the of the American Legion, which is a veterans organization for World War I veterans. Uh, he drowned in 1933. Uh, he was boating in in Lake Murray, and the boat rocked. He was up on top of the cabin looking for, uh, for uh, I guess for uh, another, a smaller boat, yeah. and he was knocked into the water. And he had a bit of difficulty swimming because he had lost his arm in the action that resulted in the Medal of Honor. And they tried to throw a, a, you know, a rope to him with a life buoy, but with one arm it's hard to swim and grab. And so he drowned in 35 feet of water. Yeah. Uh, you think about uh, the, the other ones, and correct me if I mispronounce, not being from South Carolina, I'm prone to mangling pronunciations, but uh, John Villepig. Mm-hmm. Uh, he died at the age of 47 in the Veterans Hospital, uh, unmarried. His death certificate indicates that he was an alcoholic. Okay. One, one last one: uh, Gary Evans Foster, uh, from from Inman, uh, South Carolina. Uh, he he lived a bit longer to uh, to age 56, but for 25 years he suffered from a kidney disease. And that kidney, I looked at the kidney disease is associated with exposure to mustard gas.
0: And so, you know, Andy, when you're going through that, what we're really talking about, at least in three of those cases, is PTSD. But they didn't know what that was. The man who became an alcoholic, that's a fairly common symptom of PTSD. Mm -hmm. Now, those who survived the war, uh, General Dozier, in the early 19... Once he got to be adjutant general, bought a pint of whiskey. And it says... And this was... We've already got the 19th Amendment. Uh, We're dry, and it says medicinal. (laughs) And it was passed. They would meet every year. They did not drink it. The seal's not broken. The bottle still exists. But the idea would be that the last man would open the bottle and toast his fallen comrades. The last person to own that was General Dozier, but he never broke the seal and that and don't it wasn't because General Dozier did not like his bourbon because he did, but he he told his granddaughter that, that there was too much associated with the men who's hand, who had handed that bottle around, and I gather they would try to do a silent you know they would raise it the bottle and remember those who were not there and um, so uh, they did they kept up with one another. After the war, um, but you mentioned the mustard gas.
1: The mustard gas is uh, it's an interesting, interesting issue. Uh, there, there were, you know, there are long, and we're we're learning even today because mustard gas has been used, uh, especially in the Iran-Iraq wars. There have been Americans who were exposed to lewisite and related mustard agents over in the Middle East in recent years, uh, and they aside from the immediate damage, there are some long-term effects, uh, psychological, cancer. So we really have no idea exactly how many World War I veterans suffered from long-term exposure to chemical weapons. Oddly, I, I looked it up, and one thing really surprised me about, about the mustard gas, because I was looking for stories about veterans uh, who suffered from the, and I found a few. Uh, one man who had lost his voice for, for several years because he had gotten mustard gas in his throat and a cyst had developed on, on his vocal cords and he couldn't talk. And then finally the cyst burst and released the mustard agent and thankfully didn't cause any greater damage, but he could talk, he was happy about that. But what uh, what um, really, really struck me was, this was before 1925, before, before these chemical weapons were banned, was Americans had a very different view of of chemical weapons then. Uh, I found other stories about where out in Texas uh, they were using mustard gas on rattlesnakes. Uh, there were bootleggers in Alabama who uh, apparently rigged their vehicle with a mustard gas dispenser so that they could release it on the police. On the other side of the, of the badge, the police were using, uh, were using mustard gas grenades Uh, in Illinois, and there was an instance in Delaware where near I guess militia troops were, uh, they had tear gas and mustard gas grenades that they were going to use for crowd control. Of course, after 1925, that that all became uh, illegal.
0: I want to go back to the civilian side, or the side back here in South Carolina, and these camps of 30,000 plus people are bustling and then all of a sudden the plug gets pulled. You want to deal with that?
1: Uh, Yes, uh, there was a certain amount of desperation uh, in the the chambers of commerce when this happened because it had, uh, you know, the the armistice came, they were preparing for a much longer conflict. There were, after these initial divisions left, new divisions came in and they were ramping up to go overseas and when that stopped, the, 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 the spigot of federal dollars turned off and They were left with these camps, and there were a lot of efforts made to try to keep the camps open. They wanted to be—it was almost like competition for professional sports teams. Uh, They they were willing to give to give land, to give incentives to uh, to to keep these camps open. they were unsuccessful in every case in South Carolina. Uh, Camp Jackson was, was technically closed by the federal government. It remained open during the 1920s and the 1930s as a, as a National Guard mm-hmm. encampment. It was not federalized and did not become Fort Jackson until the eve of the, of, of the Second World War.
0: But Wadsworth and Sevier closed.
1: Uh, Wadsworth and Sevier closed. Uh, they did try to make some efforts, especially in Sevier and, and Jackson, uh, to, to keep airfields there. Mm-hmm. Camp Jackson had an airfield called Emerson Field, uh, and there was a small field at Camp Sevier, and during 1918, the 276th Aero Squadron was, was stationed there. They actually did a lot of mapping of the—they really performed a service, not only militarily, but they, they did a lot of early aerial mapping of— of, of, of South Carolina, uh, and they tried to keep them there, and they were ultimately unsuccessful. Well,
0: I did not realize that Jackson had an airfield.
1: Yeah, that was something I learned fairly recently as well. Uh, it was, and I'm still trying to figure out the location of it, uh, the, according to news accounts, it was somewhere around Garner's Ferry Road on the Hampton property, and so I'm sure that's been That's, that's pretty well been obliterated, I imagine. Uh,
0: (laughs) Well, and you talk about trying to get, keep the camps. Of course, the story about Fort Jackson starting out as Camp Jackson is that a group of Columbia businessmen got together and bought the original acreage and gave it to the War Department as an incentive to come here in the first place. Of course, now Fort Jackson, it went, Camp Jackson, Fort Jackson, then briefly camp again, and then permanently Fort Jackson. Paris so Island stays, the naval sure. base stays, but again, particularly the naval base, much diminished in in size. So we're gonna have somebody, Jim Cobb's gonna come talk about the e- economic impact of the war a little bit later, but I can't help but thinking you're pulling the, this, these 30,000 people depart, Greenville, Spartanburg, Columbia, and everybody else who was associated with that. And you throw that in with the drop in cotton prices, and economically, South Carolina sort of going down the tubes. So what about these boys when they came back into, into their communities?
1: Many of them became leaders in the community as... Uh As a consequence, you think about, well, uh, of course, James uh, James Dozier Mm -hmm. uh, rose to prominence as the Adjutant General Mm -hmm. of the the National Guard. Samuel Latimer is is another excellent example. He was, uh, of course, editor at the state newspaper for for many years. He he was with the 81st Division Mm -hmm. and uh, was also very active in the American Legion. Mm -hmm. Governor Olin Johnson, and later Senator, Mm -hmm. was... uh, was in the, and there's there's another unit I've, I've neglected to mention the, the 117th Engineers,
0: mm.
1: which was part of the South Carolina National Guard. Uh, they ended up being sent to the 42nd Infantry Division, which ultimately was commanded by Douglas MacArthur. And uh, uh, Olin Johnston was was part of that group. He w- was very early at uh, as an in, in an engineer outfit. They were helping to build Camp Jackson. Uh, he always took pride in that. Uh, later in his career. Uh, and then he ended up fighting with the with, with the 42nd. Uh, but, of course, came back and uh, began his political career. It's interesting, um, during the, the bonus marches of the 19, 1932, when the World War One veterans wanted to get their, their bonuses early during the Great Depression, uh, a group of them in Aiken County got together. They were going to go to Washington. And they, they wanted Johnston to, this was after he failed in his initial attempt to become governor. And they asked him to be their leader to represent them in Washington. And uh, did he? They didn't. They, they never made it to to D.C. It was broken up before they could uh, could get up there. By
0: Douglas MacArthur.
1: <laughs> Ironically.
0: <laughs> yes, I mean he 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 led the troops that broke up the yes the Bonus March, but the camp with, with Patton
1: by his side, if I recall. Yeah,
0: yeah. Any special stories that you remember you want to talk about?
1: One that's very poignant mm-hmm. that they. Uh, I think recently had a, a commemoration of, uh, there was a, a very bad accident that took place outside of Camp Jackson. Uh, the railroad came into the, I guess, came into the camp from the south end and they built a, a railroad trestle uh, over over Wildcat Creek, uh, which incidentally gave the 81st its name. Uh, they were the Wildcat Division, they were the first division to have a, a patch, uh, which was, a, was the Wildcat, uh, but it, there was a trestle that had been built and as they were moving the 81st out to go to Camp Severe for additional training, uh, something happened with the trestle and multiple cars fell off of it and about nine, nine people were killed. Mm. Uh, uh, the 81st uh, Reserve uh, Support Command recently had a commemoration for those, uh, uh, those fallen, fallen soldiers. All right, That's- any other stories? Uh, I did want to, there, there's one aspect of the, of the training which has has not received a whole lot of attention, which is, if, if I could uh, advertise a little bit for, a, you mentioned the, the book, Recovering the Piedmont Past, uh, which is it's volume two, and uh, it's gonna be out in, in November of this year from the University of South Carolina Press, uh, but there's one essay in there in particular written by uh, Jonathan Brook, independent scholar, uh, about the Glassy Mountain training range at Camp Wadsworth and, and, and Severe, they didn't they didn't train on the bases themselves except for some basic trench work and marksmanship and so forth. When they wanted to to fire machine guns and shoot artillery, uh, they they marched out to uh, a place called Glassy Mountain, which is, if you're familiar with Highway 11, the, the Cherokee Foothills Trail. It was right in that area, and they had an artillery range and a machine gun range. And this, this essay, he, uh, uh, Jonathan went out, and they've done some uh, archaeology. They found you know, old garbage pits and old trench works, and it's really an interesting cultural interaction because you have these New York National Guardsmen, uh, especially the ones that came from Camp Wadsworth. They're from New York, from New York State, and they go up into the glassy mountain area, which is, if you're familiar with the upcountry, is known as the Dark Corner. Mm-hmm. It's uh, notorious for, for moonshine and sort of these images of, of mountaineers. And so they, they interact, and these New York National Guardsmen have preconceived notions about, uh, about mountaineers, and, and then they, they sort of put those, put those to test. They have some positive interactions, uh, ultimately.
0: But generally they sent back did they describe Snuffy Smith and Abner yokel Little Abner, or...?
1: Yeah, pretty much.
0: <laughs> so, so they had a preconceived notion, and then they thought that's exactly what they found.
1: Some, some of it was reinforced. <laughs> uh-huh.
0: <laughs> <laughs> okay. All right. Anything else you'd like to add to before we open up for questions? Talking about the military here in, World War, in South Carolina in World War One. Well,
1: the, the only other place you think was the coastal artillery. There were were batteries at, uh, at Fort Moultrie. There were batteries around Port Royal. And uh, they, as it turned out, the German Navy and the U-boats were not as big a threat as initially expected, and so a great many of them were dismantled. Uh, and actually a lot of the guns that were above 155 millimeter uh, were dismantled and shipped over to Europe.
0: So, so those so, batteries that were put in during the Spanish-American War, they dismantled those and sent the...
1: The, the larger ones, yes. The
0: large guns. To Europe, okay. Bob's going to get the microphone
1: and pass it around. What impact did the flu of
0: 1918 have on Fort Jackson?
1: Well, that's a, uh, well it's uh, first off, it's it's one of many diseases. Uh, besides besides the flu, uh, when you when you bring together large numbers of people like this in a in a, in a rural environment and in, in a pre pre antibiotic pre vaccine age. Uh, there's all sorts of diseases. So even before the flu came along, there were problems with meningitis, uh, measles, uh, diphtheria, uh, and and then and then the flu on, on top of that. Uh, the flu arrived in at Camp Jackson in South Carolina during the fall of 1917. Uh, it first appeared at Fort Riley in the spring. I think around March of 19, uh, 19, uh, 1918. Excuse me. Uh, I said, I think I said 17, I meant 18. Uh, And then it, I guess, came back, uh, hit Camp Devons, Massachusetts, in the late summer of uh, 1918, and then it it spread southward. Uh, There were, uh, I think, about 2,000 people hospitalized at Camp Jackson, and uh, a great many of them died. Some of them died from the flu, some of them died from pneumonia that resulted afterwards. Uh, so it's hard to, it's hard to get exact numbers. Also, with censorship, they di- the, the military did not want to, you know, to make big news out of this. So it's very difficult to get precise statistics of how many people uh, actually died of the flu. Well,
0: there, there are stories in Spartanburg, I've seen some contemporary diaries, that uh, one was by a young woman, and she talked about the wagons carrying coffins going down to the, to, from the camp to the railroad station on a regular basis and somewhere in town the church bells would be tolling and she said it was constant at that time. Now you, yeah. you mentioned meningitis and I've seen the medical hand, military handbook for Dr. Fitzhugh Sally who was from up in, he was from Sally but he spent his, the rest of his life in Union and the way the army treated meningitis was exactly when it got to camp it was exactly the same way that meningitis, the army reacted uh, in 1969 when I was at Fort Polk, and that is, there was a meningitis outbreak, so everybody had to open up all the windows, and that's in the medical book, and then if a, a thing like this, you could not sit next to any individual, they didn't stop training, but they spaced somebody every other,
1: and, like that.
0: and, and actually his, his treatment, soldiers' diseases, I felt like I was reading an 18th century medical manual.
1: I wanted to add one thing about, about, about Camp Jackson and the flu, which is, uh, might be of interest. The Department of War, uh, I guess, keeps, um, keeps medical samples, and one of the, one of the samples they kept was a, a lung tissue sample from a soldier at Camp Jackson who had died in, in, 19, in 1918, and they preserved it in candle wax. And they kept that tissue sample up, I think, in Baltimore uh, until the 1990s. And when genetic sequencing technology became uh, more sophisticated, they, they broke open the sample. And so a, sam- a soldier from Camp Jackson helped to sequence the, the flu gene uh, from, from 1918.
0: What was the role of uh, South Carolina members of Congress in the growth and... Uh decay and regrowth of Camp Port Jackson? Actually, it began a little bit before World War One. It, it started with Senator Tillman and the Naval Base discovered that, yes, it would be federal aid and pork was awfully good to be brought home to South Carolina. And until fairly recently, that was a mantra of every politician in, that represented this state uh, was to Bring home what you can for the military. I mean, they said about the late Mendel Rivers in Charleston that if you add one more sailor, the whole peninsula is going to break off and sink into the Atlantic. But you, you, yes, the, the political figures were very active in bringing them here and trying very much to keep them afterwards. But as Andy pointed out, it was really General Dozier and the National Guard that, because that cantonment, as they called it then, was still there when they began to ramp up for World War II, they didn't have to clear the ground, they still had crude infrastructure, so in many ways that's a lasting impact of World War I on on South Carolina. I'd like to thank Andy Myers for coming down from Upstate to be with us, and thank you all for being here, and hope to see you next week. This is Walter Edgar, and I hope you enjoyed today's journal. I know that I did. Andy Myers is a longtime friend. He had an association with the Institute for Southern Studies when I was director there. And his research on the military in South Carolina, particularly Camp Jackson, has been fascinating. Just imagine, at the three major training posts in South Carolina, Camp Severe, Camp Wadsworth, and Camp Jackson, 30,000 men were trained at any one time at those three places. And Spartanburg only had a population of about 15 to 16,000. Incredible impact. We also covered the bravery of South Carolinians in World War I, seven Medal of Honor winners. And across the country, there were only 76 awarded. So 10% of the Medal of Honor winners came from the Palmetto State. This is Walter Edgar. Join me next week for more of The Journal. Walter Edgar's Journal is a production of South Carolina Public Radio. The producer and engineer is Alfred Turner. Production of this program is made possible in part by listener contributions to the ETV Endowment of South Carolina. The views and opinions expressed on Walter Edgar's Journal are not necessarily those of South Carolina Public Radio.